Welcome to Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. In this show, we'll be talking to some real-life experts on how to get through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and maybe even feelings of hopelessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. So today... Um, we have the great pleasure uh, and honor of hearing from Susan. Uh, and Susan, I'm wondering if for our listeners, you could share a little bit about where you are geographically located right now. What city, what state, and where are you at this moment? Are you inside? Are you outside? And what, is it, what does it look like and feel like where you're at today? Well, I'm in Reno, Nevada, uh, not too far from you, and uh, I am at, sitting at my uh, kitchen table, which has become kind of the center of my life since in the past three weeks. I, uh, I abandoned my desk in the next room, and everything is here. It's close to the refrigerator. And I have all my books and I can look out on uh, my uh, neighborhood and it's pretty good. I'm, as soon as you said that you were at the kitchen table, it, it reminded me of the political sort of um, phrases and conversations that people have during presidential uh, years for elections. And people say like, you know what people are talking about right now at their kitchen tables. Right. We're like hearing this phrase about how all the really important conversations about the real issues that people are grappling with happen in conversations at the kitchen table. Yeah. And uh, it struck me as you described where you were, that that is exactly what we are doing right now while yeah. it's virtual in some yeah. way, and we are, in fact, in a presidential election year. Um, so these are new kitchen table uh, conversations, and I'm really excited to get to have that with you today. Okay. The first question that I really have for you in this time together is, can you describe what your life was like before the pandemic for us. And that could be a couple of weeks ago, a couple of days ago. I don't know when you have sort of marked in your history, this is when this pandemic began. So what was it like before then? What did you do for exercise, socializing, um, just everyday errands and things? And then what is it like now, today, right this minute? And what has changed, if anything? Okay. Well, I think it's important to say it's um, March 31st, uh, 2020, because uh, every day is changing, I mean, dramatically. And uh, what we say today might look very different in two days. But to return to your question, so I uh, retired from teaching at the University of Nevada, Reno, um, Gee, it's um, six and a half years ago. And I taught in the School of Social Work and, uh, and taught there for uh, 20 years. And then I've continued to teach a little bit since. So my life, um, one, is of a retired person. And that, um, um, so that, that is a, a mixed bag in this situation. Uh, one, I'm... 76 and have a little bit of history of lung issues. So that is uh, kind of puts me in the middle of, a, of an at-risk group. But there are other things about being um, retired in that age that puts me in a very privileged group. Um, one, I, um, you know, I own my own little house and uh, I have a pension and I don't have the pressures of work every day. I don't have the pressures of like that a young um, uh, parent might have. And so my days um, before this all started were um, a mix of, of, you know, staying in touch, particularly my, I have three uh, grown children with, with wonderful families of their own. And um, uh trying to stay active, doing uh, a little bit of, uh, of uh, 
intellectual and teaching work still. I, I, um, uh, I've taught at, I've, uh, when I retired from teaching, I really missed the teaching. I didn't miss everything about the university, but I've missed teaching. And I was lucky enough to find a way to begin to teach at the Northern Nevada Correctional Center, which is a medium security men's prison um, just 30 miles down the road. Uh, so that has been a big part of my life for the last six years, almost seven now. And um, the other thing is that I also um, continued to teach on occasion um, uh, at the university and, and, most, um, and mostly I've taught this class that I has been my the very favorite type class I've ever taken, I mean, I've ever taught, which is uh, called Mass Incarceration, Race and Justice, uh, which is a class that I developed uh, or started to develop maybe eight years ago when I, my life was really, that issue of incarceration really came on loud and strong in my life. So um, that's uh, a little bit of what my life uh, looked like before uh, this started, and which now is, I would say we're, for me, it feels like three weeks into it. And uh, I'm lucky to live um, a block and a half from my daughter, her husband, and two wonderful grandchildren. So I get to see them every day. I, they don't come into my house. I don't go into their house. But um, I, I can uh, cook a meal and take it down to them, which I often do. And we, if it's a nice day, we can stand outside and talk. And I'm talking all the time to um, my um, um, to friends through uh, uh, I have a, I have a big circle of, of uh, I have a circle of ten women that we all graduated from college together fifty five years ago, and we stay in very close touch. And um, um, and the one uh, great um, sadness and emptiness in my life is that um, uh, as of March seventh, I have had no I. They cut off all visitation, every you know, every uh, everything from con my contact with the men who were in my uh, class at the prison. So I have um, really no idea of what is happening to them. But we can talk about that a little later on. So, but I. Um, I. You know, people ask, how are you doing? And, and mostly I answer pretty well, but that doesn't take into account the kind of terrors that, um, you know, where, that I think are a part of all of our lives. Um, you know, what, what does this mean? I mean, what existentially does this mean? And, um, how, I mean, we know, we have some idea of the pandemic. I mean, our, our brains can kind of reach around that. Um, but is this part of the larger existential problem, you know, of what's happening to our earth, what's happening to everything? And and then like on a day to day, like on a day like today, the numbers are exploding. And we have, I think, 15 or 16 deaths now in Nevada. I just read that that is supposed, that the prediction is that that will rise to 800 by the time this is over. 800, it's 800, yeah. So, um, and on the one hand, those are numbers, and those numbers alone are so big and they're so scary, and they're mostly frightening because 
behind each of those numbers is a person and their lives right. and the family and friends and community right. that they are and were a part of. And so it really is an 800. That number is hundreds of thousands of people who are impacted by this from the starting point of three numbers, eight, zero, zero. Right. And I'm struck by how you mentioned a little while back now in this interview <laughs> that you were retired, but nothing that you shared about what you do on the day-to-day sounded like someone who is retired, um, still teaching, still uh, involved with children and grandchildren, um, going uh, above and, and beyond just the sort of gardening and taking care of myself in home and visiting with folks, having regular conversations with these 10 women that you've known for 50 years and, and all these kinds of things. So uh, I have my mother too is, is in her seventies and um, she volunteers and she goes to the gym and, and goes swimming and does all these things in an act of basically exploring the reality of physics. Does a body in motion stay in motion? Does a mind still active stay active? And so at this point, um, I'm struck by this interesting change in how your day-to-day is. And it reminds me of how other people might have already been living their retired lives, um, you know, passing food back and forth, sharing time, but limiting, you know, some, some contact and maybe having less community um, interaction in their lives. And you, you framed this thing as in, I have, I take risks, but I also have privilege. And, and sort of, you know, sharing that. What people can't see right now that I can see because we're interviewing via Zoom over video and because I've been to your house, is that at your kitchen table and behind you right now is this ginormous world map. (laughs) And I'm wondering, A, why do you have a world map that takes up the entire wall in your kitchen? And B, have you been looking at that map and seeing different things now because of the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. And I want to, I, before I completely, before I answer that question, I want to say something about your mom. I know that she does what she does because she loves you and because she loves your sisters and, be, and the grandchildren, your nieces. And is it all nieces? It's, there's a nephew too, right? There's one nephew, yes. Yeah. yeah. And that love is such a powerful and dominating um, characteristic of retirement of this age of that of wanting to pass on the very best that we we could or that we ever imagined to the next generation and the generation after that, and the horror that what might be passed on is something worse than we could ever imagine. It, it flies in the face of a lifetime of work to, to make a better world. <laughs> and how is, it, how is this? How is it that this is what we're giving you? How is it that this is what I'm giving my grandchildren? And um, and I bet every, I bet I bet you could talk to your mom and all kinds of people like us, and that is what you would find again and again and again. Yeah. And I think the world is about love, too, isn't it? It's like the connections. You know, you know I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in um, my family where on one side we're all um, small farmers. On the other side, like clerks in um, small towns or 
and my dad was a traveling salesman. Uh, and I was, I, I grew up in Minnesota and um, in a little farming town and pretty much thought that was the whole of, of life. I mean, I, that, you know, what I saw around me was the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was, an, and um, I went away to college and then I, um, when between my junior and senior year, I went to um, to Europe with three other three friends, and um, I mean it sounds kind of strange, and that to find out that there were other people in the world, and that their lives were just as valid as mine, <laughs> just a hundred percent as valid as mine, that opened up that opened up everything. And um, so I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that I came of age in the, um, in the early, um, in the early and mid sixties when everything in the world was um, exploding in the Vietnam war, the civil rights movements, the liberation movements all over the world. And I began to, So that shaped me and it took me out of that little narrow mind frame that I was. And that's, that's why a map like this, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it just is so great. And, and besides that, anybody comes into the house, there's always a conversation about the world <laughs> because they go up to the map and say, oh, well, well, you know, like, I know somebody, you know, so... It's great. It's great for the grandchildren, too. (laughs) I think having um, maps and being able to locate people, places, and things in our lives and anyone's life is, um, is so important. It grounds us in almost being able to ask the question, what's important? Yeah. You know, when, when we read news or hear news about over there, and you can look at a map and see that over there is actually right here, same planet, just down the road. You know, I, I was a history teacher for many years. And um, in that 12 years, there were a couple times that I had to teach geography. Uh-huh. And geography, I would just, you know, bring into uh, world history classes. And I remember once I um, asked students to go up to the map and point at pretty simple uh, places. Where's Los Angeles? Kids would point to someplace in Nevada. Um, where's, uh, you know, Detroit? People would, you know, go somewhere in middle America. Um, where is uh, Thailand? They kind of go someplace nowhere near Asia. And the more unfamiliar the state or city, the more to middle, uh, middle uh, America they went. The more unfamiliar the country, the more they went to the continent of Africa. It was super interesting what we do and don't know and how small our world is when we see the world much smaller than it actually is. And right now, it feels more important than ever, not only to have maps of the world, but maps of our community, maps of our hopes and dreams, maps of our deepest fears so that we can locate where we are on any given day and where over there is and how close it is to here. And so you've been talking a lot about this zoom in and zoom out and zoom in and zoom out. And I'm wondering if you could share why it is that six, eight years ago, you decided to adapt your world or take moments of your world and bring it into the worlds of folks who were incarcerated, who are incarcerated, whose world got very small and very different or very big because all, all we have in confined moments is our imagination to dream about what is possible on the other side. So why, why go into that? Why, why is it important? What would even be, what do you get from going into a, a prison and interacting with men who are incarcerated? 
Well, it's the story of a lifetime, really. It's, it was no accident that, um, uh, um, that, when that when the opportunity crossed my um, uh, path that I jumped at it. I had a, I had a friend uh, who was uh, uh, teaching in prison that I actually didn't even, we had been friends um, long ago when we were both activists in um, uh, Wisconsin um, in the 1960s. And uh, she had, unbeknownst to me, she'd moved to uh, Reno and had been teaching at this, at uh, the Northern Nevada Correctional Center. And uh, uh, we discovered each other. And, uh, and she said, and I was so fascinated with what she was doing. And I, I, she said, why, why don't you do it? And I, so I said, I'd like to. And I started take, um, doing the, um, you know, going through the process to get approved to go in. And I always imagined that I would go in with her and that she would um, introduce me and I could kind of, um, um, what do you call it when you trail after a teacher and find out how, how you do the job? Um, like a student teacher? Yeah. Uh, a mentorship of sorts? Unfortunately, I mean, incredibly, she died. Um, before that, you know, just we had uh, less than a year together. And, um, and I, what happened is I just took over her classes and they, I went, after I got approved, I, you know, I went into the prison um, and uh, uh, the person who was in charge of that particular unit took me um, to this kind of rundown classroom and said, and introduced me to this room full of 30 men and, uh, and then left. And there I was. <laughs> and uh, uh, For what it's worth, Susan, you just described, take out the, the men uh, description, and you just described my first day of teaching as really? well. Um, <laughs> only I had, I had 40 students and only 20 <laughs> desks and yeah. no books and a hole in the wall. Yeah. So, you know, institutions are institutions. So uh, uh-huh. please continue. Okay. So, you know, I, um, I, I had been very um, um, kind of, um, Michelle, um, what's, I'm having a senior moment. Um, the new Jim Crow uh, had. Uh, uh, Michelle Alexander. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> All I could think of was Obama. Uh, Michelle Alexander is the new Jim Crow. I really knocked my socks off. So I, I was very, very curious about um, uh, prisons and, uh, you know, it kind of had, an, that book had enlightened me to that the, the locking up of incredible numbers of our fellow citizens was not an accident, was a product of, uh, of our history, of, 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 uh, of slavery, of the genocide, and more recently of the, uh, the drug wars. So um, philosophically, um, I too love history. You know, philosophically, I was, uh, you know, right there in that mix. But the, um, of course, uh, the, um, what really, what happens in the prison class is, uh, is, uh, is a different thing than those large, large ideas. It's also the same thing, but um, um, I just, I, I just grew to um, love that teaching. It, it was, uh, and I think almost anybody that has taught in a prison will say that it's uh, some of the best um, experience teaching that they have ever had. And, uh, um, it because the classroom in a prison setting becomes um, this this wonderful place where you know for an hour and a half every week you can be yourself where you can have a relationship with each 
with each other and when you can laugh. And Wait, did you, were you just saying then that, that one of those first times you were teaching in the prisons the new Jim Crow book? Uh, no, uh-uh. I had so read that book. Okay, so the book informed what you were teaching. What were you teaching in, the, in, the, in these classes? Um, well, in, uh, I, I started out um, by, I guess, first three or four years. Um, I had a class in, called Creative Writing, and I also had a class called Cultural Perspectives. And in both cases, I would take in um, poetry, a short story, uh, something that we could read uh, mostly in a day and, uh, or in an hour. And then uh, in the writing class, they would write in response to it. And in the reading class, we would have a discussion. And the, the, um, the quality of the response to, to it was, was amazing. Um, Let's see. Would you like me to tell you a story about it? Would that, would that help? I would love for you to tell me a story. Yes. Okay. Well, so this is an example. I have um, a, um, a student in the class who is um, probably in his 70s. He's, um, he's uh, white. He's a former Marine. He has... Um, tattoos. He, uh, he looks a little threatening. And he also loves Shakespeare. He loves the Greek tragedies and he loves the transcendentalists. And he loves nature. And he asked me if I would bring in something by Emerson. So I did. I brought in Emerson's essay on nature and we read it. And in this class, which is a you know, very diverse uh, class um, we're reading through and um, a, a man um, who is um, a, a, a Sufi uh, Muslim uh, said he said you know this sounds a lot like Sufism and we we all I kind of we all kind of said what and and um, and the the man I'll call I'll just call him um, Douglas, who had asked me to bring in the 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 essay said assured him that it had nothing there was no relationship with Sufism, and uh, but that then um, uh, the other man um, let's just call him. Um, Muhammad, and said, well, yeah, but it does sound a lot like it. So I went home. I was kind of curious. And, um, and I found out this is a whole field of study, the relationship between the transcendentalists and Sufism. And no surprise, because they're both kind of rebellions against a much more regimented religion and, and a cry for a more personal uh, religion. And most surprising, it turns out that Emerson himself he had discovered as a, mute, a muse, is that how you say it? Um, the, is it the 13th or 14th century Sufi poet, mm -hmm. um, Hafiz. So I took that back to the class and I took and I looked, I, I ran off some scholarly papers and I gave it to the two men and said, you know, come and give us a, uh, tell us more about this. And, and I, I'm going to end the story there. It goes on a little bit, but that's the kind of quality of intellectual exchange that I was blown away by that. You know, how many years have I been in school? Many years. I had never heard anything that talked about a relationship between uh, 14th century Sufism <laughs> and uh, the transcendentalists. And, and in the room, there was this kind of feeling you could, that here we were in this lousy prison classroom and had come across this, I, these ideas and these people that integrated um, 
the 14th century and the 21st century, 21st century, you know, uh, um, people from Iran and people from New England. And, the, the, and that's very special. And it says, it says a lot. It says a lot about the quality of and the desire of people's minds to stay alive and to to um, grapple with the big the the big questions and so so when you ask what do I get out of it that's the kind of thing that I get out of it like it's you know intellectually it's it's wonderfully challenging to me on a personal level people you know you get to love each other and you know the prison would be horrified to use that to hear anybody use that word because you're supposed to be very you know you're supposed to not have any of that you know it's supposed you know it's supposed to be very proper and everything but you spend yeah. that much time with people and, and people in um, reading really important stuff in difficult situations, and boy, it is love that comes through. It's, it's, it's amazing how much love is so powerful, and that's why it's so feared in places where, you know, part of the punishment is to dehumanize yes and to punish for the rest of your life not necessarily so that you don't quote recommit the crime and have the recidivism right but mostly so that you are you are somehow forever changed and and unrecognizable and not necessarily for the better but i i hear you sharing in that story the connection that people can have when historically you're not in the same time period, the connection that people can have even when you're not supposed to be connected and the connection that you get to have with folks while they're incarcerated, even though you get to leave at the end of that session and they have to stay. And right now, that idea of connecting, even though we are worlds, geographically speaking, and age and, and experience, worlds apart right now. The whole purpose behind me doing this podcast mm -hmm. is for folks to hear and the things that sound familiar so that we go back to our homes and, and look like, wait, is that familiar? Is that connected? I didn't know that before. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of relearning and discovering right now that's happening um, by the way, I just want to point out that all black women named Michelle who have a book are amazing. Michelle Alexander, Michelle Obama, Michelle Commander. So if you're a black woman and your name is Michelle and you haven't written a book yet, just know that you will be doing so in an amazing canon of writers who are telling us the most important stories that we need to hear. Okay, back to this. I have another question for you. Okay. So I'm understanding that you were born in the 40s. Um, when we are ending, but in the middle of a world war, you mentioned growing up and becoming active in many ways during the Vietnam War. We've also had, unfortunately, several wars since then. Um, and what I want to ask you now is, does this current time of not knowing what's going to happen from day to day uh, when days feel like years, where the future seems so bleak and it becomes so hard to imagine a positive, good future. Have you been here before? Um, have you experienced these kinds of feelings and anticipations and anxieties before? And when was that? And how did you get through that moment so that we and you can hear that and maybe start to deploy that now? Mm -hmm. I've thought of that question too, and the answer is yes and no. And uh, one, uh, so I was very active against the war in Vietnam. And one of the things that we did uh, uh, fairly early on, this is like in 66, is, um, in 67, is um, 
Uh, I was part of the Wisconsin Draft Resistance, a full-time organizer in the Wisconsin Draft Resistance Union. And uh, uh, the way that uh, organization started and many others was that people signed, we won't go pledges. We won't go. You know, we don't believe in this war. We are not going to go. And you did not know what was going to happen once you did that, you know, was uh, it, it potentially the, the, the punishment, um, the jail time and the level of the felony could be quite high. And we, we, we just didn't know. And that, that unknowing was also felt in, um, in lack of control. I guess that's, I guess that would be another way of saying that just not being able to control your future was very much related to the draft. You know, if you were 18 and a man uh, and like weren't in college up until 67, you were going to go. There was just no, <laughs> you know, I, I don't And know. life and death was on the line. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how old, your ne- how old is your nephew? Uh, my nephew now is 27. So he's older. So you can imagine, you remember him when he was 18, no doubt. And uh, he would have been gone. And that, that not being in control. And, and of course, I'd also was present in the uh, civil rights movement, not knowing, you know, when you're, if you're in Mississippi and, um, registering people to vote or whatever, not knowing what the consequence and not being able to control that world. Um, that was characteristic. That was character. That was, so that was something that is shared today. This but you did it anyways. You did it anyways. Not knowing you yeah. were, you were still getting people to sign these pledge cards. They were still signing them. You were still registering people to vote. Why? You could have risked everything. Is that was that risk worth it? A hundred percent. And <laughs> how? Why? Why was it worth it? Why was it worth it? Because if you're in this time and you are looking away, you just threw away your humanity. You just threw away that that love that we were talking about earlier about your your mom and, um, and, and the connection of people in the world, you just threw that away. You just put that in the garbage and, uh, and you lost your chance at, at, at humanity. And why would you do that? Why would you do that? Even though, yeah, you, yeah, you, that chance, we're talking about connection. It's only in doing things like that that you really have an opportunity to connect. And um, it's the reason we're, con- you and I are connected. It's, you know, it's, it defines so much of life. And, um, so you're describing, you're describing really hard moments and decisions that you and others are are intentionally saying yes or intentionally saying no, knowing and not knowing that the consequences are going to be prolific, whether it's good or bad, they are going to stay with us. And so in the middle of that not knowing, how did you stay committed? Because when things get really hard, my first instinct is run away. And then my second instinct is run to. Yeah. And, I, and it's this extreme, oh, no, no, I don't want to know it. And then, okay, what can I do? And I know that we're not all like that. Some of us just run away and we stay run, run out. And some of us run to and never take care of ourselves along the way. So how did you stay in those commitments at that time? I think that um, you stay because of the connections you have with people. And they might be connections with people that are 
like sitting at your at your table at your kitchen table, and they might be getting connections with um, uh, people that you found in a book, like James Baldwin, or um, the people um, you know. Um, uh, people in the civil rights movement or in the emerging women's movements and that you can, um, you, like, like <laughs> I was saying to a friend of mine about, you know, when I was getting scared about the, the numbers exploding and the coronavirus and being so, you know, not, you know, not knowing what is going to happen and is it going to, you know, how close is it going to come to me and that sort of thing. I said to a friend, okay, I need to bring out the big guns. <laughs> and for me, the big guns are James Baldwin, Maya Angelou, all of those people that, that you know, they write the real stuff, the, the real, real stuff that can keep you going, keep you going another day. And I find, you know, not, I think maybe not everybody finds, finds those people and finds them to be really super important in their life. But, but I do. That's been a. a it's partly because I'm a reader, but that's been a big, big deal in my life. What do they say, or what do they speak about, or how do they do those things that give you comfort to return to? Well, I think if they're, say, if it's a person like W. E. B. Du Bois. And he's writing about um, history, and he's writing about African American history. Or James Baldwin might be writing about history, and you begin to see that you're not just this person that's plopped on on Earth kind of randomly, but you are you are a part of a particular moment of history that is not has not been here before and will not be here again. And that in that moment of history, you and others have a role and uh, you have a relationship with each other and with um, what is going on in the world. And to, and to me, that, sex, that sense of a historical moment is really important. It's something I try, and not always successfully, to teach in, like, in my classes at the university. Like, like I'll ask students when you know, like, the most important people in your lives, and I'm thinking of somebody like Du Bois or James Baldwin or Audre Lorde or something like people like that. And um, but very often the students will say, "My mom or my grandma," and and that's, and that's, so sometimes I think I'm a little odd that way, but, um, but then I try to introduce the students to all those readers, writers, and, 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 and they begin to get it too. So I don't know if that answers your question, but. Oh no, I, I think these are, these are all getting to much larger questions and maybe even more important ones. I'm wondering if you have anything that you think is important for folks who right now are in social work um, programs, who are social workers themselves right now already, um, directors, therapists, folks carrying caseloads and looking at uh, and out for the, the welfare of young people and, and folks who are homeless and folks who are struggling right now. In your experience in social work and in teaching in social work programs, these are, in fact, unprecedented, historic, unique times. And yes, we all have roles to play. So for those who have been given the part in this play as the social workers, what, what advice do you have for them on how to be in this time and in those roles? Well, um, to me, um, um, 
you know, you're you're almost always uh, functioning within an institution. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, you're very familiar with an institution in high school. And so you have a prison, maybe it's a welfare department. Um, it could be a, 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 a hospital. It could be a number of things. And, that, and those institutions have their own agendas. And... Uh, Sometimes they're supportive. More often they aren't. More often they prevent you from really doing what you sense that you want to do. And people over time get beaten down, can get beaten down and, and, and um, kind of just become what the institution wants them to become. It's a big danger, say, in prisons. Um, and, uh, and so um, social workers, teachers, um, all kinds of people have to be very strong to maintain the connection with whoever it is, if it's, you know, the students or um, the men or the women in prison, the young people in a detention center with uh, immigrant families. And it, you have to really be strong and hang on really hard to do that and know that, that it, you are gonna be um, confronted, um, you know, in very important ways like, you know, you're going to be worried you're going to lose your job if you, if you do X. And, uh, um, and so you have to be very strong. And, and, but the rewards of staying in, you know, I know that those kids that you taught, that they still, you know, that they love you because I've seen that happen. And I know about the connection that it's pos is possible in prisons. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I guess that's my main big advice, that it's not going to be easy and, you know, gird up. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, I think, um, I think one of the things that I'm hearing repeated in this time with you are a couple of, of things. One, that we have to stay strong, that loving, showing love, being loving, receiving love, being able to know what love looks like and sounds like and bringing those in when you need it and staying, you know, in humanity and relishing it and remembering it, not losing sight of it and not to look away during the hardest times will have such intense and wonderful rewards that remind us again of that map on the wall and how it is a map not of different planets and different worlds, but of one. And it's what keeps us with that front and center as much as possible. And it sounds like when there are moments and opportunities, as some might see them, for us to be disconnected from one another, for us not to see each other, for us not to be in spaces together, that the real way that we get through those moments is by thinking about the last time we connected with that person. And that's what we're doing now. Yeah. It's, it's what many folks have been doing for decades, not because of a choice to be socially distant from the people that they loved but because they were forced into being socially distant from the people that they love. And that's how they stay anchored in their humanity. And I'm wondering, you know, you shared and have been sharing a lot of also fear about what you're going to leave behind, about what will be left. And, and, and in that sharing of that fear of what's to come, I also hear you know, a lot of, a lot of sadness around, did you do now all that you could have done mm -hmm. 
knowing that you shared with us that there were other hard moments in history that when that question came to you, am I, can I do more? What am I doing to sort of intervene or help in this moment? And you went there, you did that. You, you, you did what you could at that time in that moment in that way. And now it's questionable. Now there's a question, are we doing enough? Am I doing enough? And yet what has grounded you in so much of the work is reading and hearing stories of folks who have put pen to paper and shared about their lives and you go into the prisons and you ask people to do the same thing. And so I want you to imagine that it's five years into the future and it's 2025. You're five years older. Your grandchildren are five years older. The world is five years older. Who knows what happened to that number of 16 or 800 we don't know, but if you could imagine that you are still here and you are at a gathering where we are less than six feet apart, maybe, maybe we're even one foot apart, who knows? We might be risky. Maybe we're back to hugging and high-fiving and handshaking. And you find yourself saying out loud, maybe unexpectedly, I, I'm actually, you know, I'm actually really grateful for that pandemic time in 2020, because at least now I or we have blank. Dig deep, Susan. (laughs) How can you imagine, much like the times that you ask folks in the class in prison to imagine something that's better than what is right now, how would you complete that sentence? I'm grateful because now I or we have what? Oh, I can answer that in, I have two answers to that. The first one, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that we were able to step back from the brink in our, in terms of our planet, and that I, um, some, uh, uh, that, um, that, that the virus, uh, for all of its awfulness, played an important role in alerting us that if we did not change dramatically our relationship with the earth, that we would lose it. And I can see that happening. I can really see that happening, that, you know, big, big wake up that, oh, thank God we're, we're not, we're, three steps back from the brink, you know, and we're going in the right direction. I can absolutely see that. The second thing is that, um, is that somebody I read um, um, just a couple days ago said, uh, the thing with a pandemic is that it throws everything on its head. And, uh, and, and, uh, and then sometimes we're, and then we're able to see what, we avoided looking at before and we're able to see the inequalities in the, in the um, world and we're able to see what they try to keep hidden. And we're, that's going to be definitely true in the prisons because that pandemic is, it, the potential is so terrible. People have no way to protect themselves in the prison. So, um, and that I could say I'm grateful that so many people had the courage to look and that they came away and they worked through it and they came away like, do you have any idea? Do we, do we have any idea what the nurses and doctors are learning now? I mean, it is so much more than, um, you know, and... <laughs> Well, this is a low bar than Donald Trump will ever <laughs> know. But, and what people are, 
people are seeing, you know, uh, what inequality looks like. People are seeing in, um, what strength and courage looks like, and they can take hope for another day. And um, I can see that happening too. Of course, I can see the reverse, the opposite happening, but I can see that um, uh, that, that is possible. Be, um, and they'll fight us like hell on that, but um, I can, I, I can see that. I can see that because there is enormous strength. Like um, some, my friend that um, got me that volunteer position in the prison used to say, you know, like anybody that's been able to survive a long prison term with um, his, and she's talking about men, so with his soul intact, has thought very, very, very hard. And uh, I have found that to be true again and again in terms of people that I've met. I've met, and I think that we can say, you know, if people are able to set uh, to um, uh, survive this with their souls intact, with the connections intact, and uh, and you know, and find, you know, we're not going back. To, there's no normal that we're going to go back to. Um, if we're able to use that knowledge to build uh, uh, something that works, yeah, I would. I would be very grateful. <laughs> I would I be think, very grateful. <laughs> I I think I think we all we all will. <laughs> I am I am wanting to remind us that um, what you said in there was the reminder of the courage to look, you know, yeah. Yeah. be brave enough to look and to stop and to listen and to not look away or shut it off. And that doesn't mean don't take care of yourself along the way. Right. You know, like sometimes when you're in the shower and the water's too cold, you warm it up. Sometimes when it's too hot, you cool it down. It's okay to take breaks from the information that we're getting every single day, but don't, decide to just shut it all off and completely look away because that is that moment that you've shared with us that we are disconnecting from the world and from one another. And that disconnection is how we stay disconnected. And as you were talking, I was thinking about how in these mass mobilizations or even these small mobilizations, when we protest, the things that we say, we're saying for that moment but we are also saying to remind us of things long-term. So when we say that the community united shall never be divided, we have to remember that right now. When we say we are unstoppable, that another world is possible, we have to remember that right now. And while we may not be out in the streets chanting and, and yelling at the top of our lungs in a call and response so that we hear that, we need to remember those things that we've said because they were true then and they are even truer now. And that's how we will survive this. And if we don't, then we won't, either individually or collectively. And more and more now we're learning that the individual is so small and that the collective is actually so big and so important. And maybe that's how we get back into some sort of balance. Um, I really, really appreciate your time and your insight and your wisdom. To be clear, I don't think that I could ever interview my mother. I don't know <laughs> that she would ever say yes to answering these questions. And in fact, I have found that during this time, we are less connected. We speak less often than we did in the past. And I think, you know, that's happening a lot for some of us. The fear of what we don't know has these moments of paralysis. And, um, and I hope that we can all find what we need in each other if that's the only way that we can get what we need if those who we're seeking aren't available at the time. 
Yeah. And so um, I really appreciate that. I think it's, it's a lot easier to talk to someone who you're maybe not as incredibly close with in the darkest times about your darkest feelings. So I hope that your children and grandchildren get to hear you on this interview soon and hear all the things that they need to hear from you um, right now. And I am so honored to have heard them from you today. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your Pandemic Survival Minute podcast. Stay well and stay human.